I am Puneet Kurana with my very good friend Manish Thawar and together we bring you Stoic podcast series. This series is started as an initiative by stoicinvesting.com to bring the best minds of investing to teach their wisdom irrespective of their investment style or philosophy. Learn the various viewpoints, choose the nuggets and then develop or enhance your own investing style. Hello listeners, what's up? Now before I begin today, I would like to take this opportunity to thank you guys, the regular listeners of the podcast. Well, this podcast series we started with an objective of some myth busting and some practical learnings. The attitude of modern day journalism, with extremely few exceptions, is to chase the success stories. They do that to provide the audience with some dopamine kicks of sensationalism, but the process of success is anything but sensational. I have been an investor and a money manager for long but i also wear the hat of an educator and i started this series so that i can clutter through the noise of the hypocrisy of the investment world but simultaneously also bring about some specifics to the general investment gyan that is thrown around in the world well objective is very simple i keep my students and the listeners of the podcast in my mind and most of my questions are generally from the point of view of what specific learning I can bring about in the podcast which can benefit them. I am happy that you guys have found many useful and practically applicable learnings and I thank you for all the appreciation that you give us. With that, I would like to now introduce our guest for today. Well, in the Indian markets, he really needs no introduction. He is someone you will definitely have some point of view on, love him or hate him, but he is not someone you can ignore. A sharp research mind and an acute investor who along with his wife created an organization that did rattle many cages they have struggled for their business and their freedom in many well documented battles friends we have with us shankar sharma co-founder of fuzz global the firm that he created with his wife devina but that's not all though you know today is another unusual thing about our podcast well instead of the usual setting of one co-host Today I have two my dear friends Manish Dhawan of Mystic Wealth and Nuresh Mirani of Analyze India both were a part of this conversation all three of us enjoyed this conversation with the so called parma beer of the indian market yes i asked him about that too but for that just hold on so join us in our conversation with shankar sharma Welcome to the show sir. Uh it's a privilege to be talking to you and uh, I think I can say for all of us that we are great fans. Um specifically for the kind of uh, investing which you have been doing over a period of time and your well let's say no BS views on the market almost all, all the time whenever I whenever uh, we hear you. <laughs> so sure. so um, no, thanks very much. I I look forward to having a good interactive chat with you guys. Thanks for having me. great my my pleasure um you know one of the things which we uh, try to do in our podcast is that we tend to not talk about your current views in markets and all that kind of questions because that's we're not we're not a tv channel uh, so we'll keep the questions to the philosophies and everything else yeah i'm so glad you say that <laughs> the usual day to day thing is too boring and you know that's that's really a, and that doesn't have much intellect behind it anyway I'm glad I'm glad we are going to stay, you know stay away from that. <laughs> Hopefully intellectually we'll be able to ask you better questions so let's start. <laughs> sure. Sure. Let's go. 
Sure, sure, Mr. Sharma. I just, uh, you know, want to touch, uh, pick your brains on uh, the latest interview that you just did. I heard you recently said that luck plays a key role in investments and almost 80 to 90% of your success, uh, but only 10% is, can be attributed to skill. Now, but that 10% is important to get the benefit of 90%. Uh, can you tell us what, as per you, is that 10% component? What is the skill set you think an investor should have before he can utilize his 90% luck? Okay, I mean, you know, the, the thing about investing is it's not very difficult, in, you know, in reality. You know, it, it is made out to be a very difficult thing. But if you cut to the chase, it comes down to very simple things. Uh, you know, everybody from, I think, BCom first year knows what is return on network. Uh, everybody knows what is the meaning of return on capital. It is simply that over a period of time, and this is this is from our own personal experience, that we kind of forget all these things and we go into a lot of minutiae, which is, you know, management quality and, you know, this CEO is, you know, is a visionary and they have, you know, a great business model. I mean, all those things are ancillary. The central point in, you know, point is very simply that it comes down to return capital and cash flow long and short of it okay in some cases you're able to see that today for instance if you go back to the 90s the multinational companies were prime examples of companies with high ROC and high cash flows okay uh, while indian companies almost uniformly never had cash flows at least back in the 90s because you know having cash flow was not considered to be a significant metric by which managements evaluated themselves so anybody who bought a basket of high cash flow and high ROE companies in the 90s, uh, you know, I'm talking about the Nestle and the Levers and, you know, the Castrols and something like 10, 15 other names without using much skill. If you just went by that simple metric and the fact is that they were not, they were not cheap, you know, which is, in fact, I must confess that we never liked them, to be honest with you, back then, because they were all 60, 80 times earnings. But anybody who said that, no, I'm just going to buy high quality companies, which is defined as high cash flow and high ROE ROC ended up, you know, making a lot of money without getting into figuring out, uh, you know, RBI's monetary policy stance or the government fiscal policy stance or the U.S. Fed policy. None of that actually mattered through a cycle of 10 years. I'm sure the basket would have compounded, you know, 30, 35%. So it comes down to pretty simple thing most of the time. So in my experience over 20 in fact, longer than about probably 30 years now. I have seen that for large parts of a market cycle, investing is pretty simple. Okay. And that is the 10%. So you basically go in, you buy what you're comfortable buying. I mean, many people are not comfortable buying bad companies. Uh, you have to invest as per whatever your mindset is. But if you do that consistently, that 10% is almost a given. Almost a given. Where we go wrong is, when we end up trying to be too cute and trying to, you know, do things which is against our grain, I and large, I have found that 10% is not rocket science. That said, that said, the 90%, you know, which I'm sure we'll talk about it, but 90% is required because in many, many, many cases, you have no idea, management has no idea how big those stories are going to become. Right. 
Okay, so that's where the luck, you know, element comes in. But we'll talk about that later. Sure. So the ten percent which you are mentioning about the skill set, I think what you are eventually saying is that the skill set also will solely depend on the individual what he's comfortable in doing and what he's not. Absolutely. And and Absolutely. you know. Uh, what you just mentioned that buying the basket of great companies well great in hindsight also but uh, uh, even by the basic parameters if you would have bought the basket would have done well uh, uh, just to get to your style of investing which we have observed over a period of time also you have been vocal about it you said that you know people look at momentum 52 week highs apparently you look at negative momentum uh, a stock in downtrend for years well it sounds fascinating um it's contradictory to what that thing which you just said but i think that's your style is that it well actually momentum is very central to our style whether negative or positive and you can play momentum both ways so you can play positive momentum the stock is successively making highs and you along that stock but basically also designed to look at it on overall basis relative strength so if you buying strength you know by and large again that plenty of studies out there that you will do pretty okay you know again there are simplified models of investing and they work actually quite well that if you bought the best performing basket of stocks in the previous year in all likelihood they will almost always remain the same yeah a few might drop out okay that's okay but as a basket if you bought the top 10 or top 15% of the market in terms of you know, out, out out performance i think you will be okay so that is one approach and we and we do employ that approach it's not to say that we don't like positive momentum Okay, because those are actually easier, easier than the negative momentum trades. Okay. The the negative momentum part is also interesting for us because it is also about a little bit of a challenge. It's a little bit of a thrill. Okay. It is like trying to attain the unattainable. <laughs> okay. So you know, in a sense, if investing becomes too easy, then you say, I mean, come on, I mean, this is just <laughs> like, just like you know, driving a car or you know riding a bike i mean what's the big deal in this and frankly there is no big deal in it you know just to make it very clear i think it's an overrated skill in any case sure so the negative momentum part also comes out of the fact that look i am going to do something i'm going to go out of, out of my comfort zone and then prove to myself that i could do, i could you know bat on a tough track instead of batting on a featherweight if you to get you know take a cricket analogy right right so the value of those runs the value of those runs is a lot more satisfying than the value of runs made against the mediocre opposition mediocre opposition is high momentum trade which are continuing for years so buying hdfc or hdfc bank or hindustan lever you know that's okay for 20% but that doesn't get us out of bed every morning okay so how much of your portfolio will keep for thrill seeking and how much for uh, and i'm not saying thrill seeking just for you know you obviously would make profits in that that's why that's why you will continue with that but uh, how would you divide your portfolio do you divide your portfolio first of all or is it as per as and when it comes yes and no it depends on the situation in the market in a in a in a sort of trending bull market then it becomes a very different portfolio because then you know you are your long you know obviously the positive momentum right in a bear market is or a bear market we will not not even on an overall basis but bear market for a sector okay that is when these kind of trades start to build up and i'm not saying thrill seeking should be the reason why you should be in the market all i'm saying is all i'm saying is i don't want to convey the wrong message all i'm saying is that in whatever you do being in the comfort zone will give you a certain normalized return over a period of time sure. being out of your comfort zone then that's 
as equity investors, we get paid to take risk. I mean, that is the reason why we are doing equities and we are not doing all other kinds of investing. That is that is central to being an equity investor, that we take risk. Right. So to take that, to, this is consistent with that, that I want to take a bit more risk at certain points of a market or a sector side. I'm not comfortable just being a safe investor and playing, you know, very straight back shots. Uh, right. So it is coming not just out of thrill seeking, simply out of the fact that you know it, you're seeing opportunities. There is danger in them, there is risk in them. But uh, it is if you, if your analysis and your or or all parameters you look for in such situations, they all uh, get checked. All the boxes get checked. Then you have to do that trade. So right. uh, just I'm just clarifying. Okay, so, so it's not so. just about you know it's, it's not it's not it's not a wild ride that one is entering. So to answer your question. There is no real hard and fast division between, you know, the high risk and the relatively low risk trade. But if I were to look at portfolios, I I think it's largely high risk. Okay. It just happens to be so. I don't think it is coming out of a very hard line. But, you know, that's, that's the way it is. Probably 60-70% might be the relatively higher risk effects. Uh, and and just, to, just to fill the gap there, when you say high risk, what are you implying there? You are implying the negative momentum. What I'm implying there is that street view is negative. Uh, consensus is very, very negative. Uh, you know, numbers are looking terrible. But some, some, something is in the works which, which convinces us that you know this could be the trade where you can make five or ten, you know, ten x. So perception risk you're talking about. It's a perception risk. You know, it's a management quality risk. People might say this is a trash management or this is, you know, unethical management or whatever it is. People have a lot of stories about every company. Right, right. Right. Uh, Mr. Sharma, uh, when when we are playing the momentum on the positive side, let's say 52 feet highs, uh, I have a feeling that the risk management is rather easy and straightforward. Whereas, when you're seeking negative momentum and literally catching a falling knife, uh, it gets a touch uh, difficult. I really wanted to understand uh, your risk management style when you do that. What percentage of your corpus would you bet on it? And when do you know that uh, uh, it's time to pack bags? Okay, I'm not I'm not into catching a falling knife, just to be clear. Okay, all the negative momentum trades over literally, you know, two decades that one would have liked and one has liked and one has made money in have all been gradual, uh, uh, you know, sort of, they're not even falling. They're like balloons drifting down, let's put it this way. So, okay, so they are like in a gentle drift. They are, in a, they are hugging the bottom for like literally for a year, two years, three years. Those are the trades that we talk about as negative momentum. It will never be a sharp fall or almost never be a sharp fall which has happened like today and we are into the trade tomorrow. That That is unlikely to happen. Unless, unless there is a trade like oil which happened, you know, last year. Where, you know, for a year or so, but even then it was a roughly a year that oil had been in a bear market because the collapse started in, I think, the end of 2014. Right. Uh, you know, and it was in a bear market for like pretty much the entire 2015. And then the bull market started, you know, started in uh, February 2016. So that's when we got interested. So it still has to spend time at the bottom. It will never ever be a straight vertical fall and then we are into the trade and you know, we have made a quick 20%. That That's not what we do from an investing angle. From a trade angle, that might happen, but that's a different part of the strategy completely. Sure. Got it. So, so what you know, it is more, 
it is more a longer term two three year kind of bear market in a stock or a sector that we are interested in interesting interesting and how much do you buy do you go all out at one go or do you build your position in such a scenario we will build our position but typically in a in a stock and remember all these companies will end up with very small market caps in any case because they are you know they they've obviously collapsed a lot okay so we will right. never actually put in a lot of capital because a lot of capital it cannot simply take you know there is not enough liquidity uh, you know available to take advantage of that so i don't think you can buy more than 5 10% of those companies in any case at the best and usually all these companies uh, you know will will have situations where you actually don't need to put a lot of absolute capital to risk because you're looking at that 20x remember 10x 20x over a 2 3 year period so you don't need to actually put in 500 crores in them you know <laughs> you, you can put in 50 and sure. you know you're going to make 10x or that in 3 years time that's 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 not bad return so you see it is actually relative to the size of your overall investment portfolio you're not risking a lot it's simply that they are so damn cheap that you know if you're putting in 25 50 crores i mean you're down 20% also it is not going to bust your bank or bust your balance sheet and relative to whatever size you are you're putting in if you're playing with you know 1 crore and you're putting in 5 lakh rupees into those trades you know you can't lose much right at the right. worst they will you know st- stick around there so you know you're not really in absolute terms you're not risking a lot and that's why i like that strategy oh, okay so you know you in in middle of your answer you said a line which i want to probably pick on you said that you're looking for a 20x trade in let's say 2 3 year time period right and right. uh, and that is possible when you are trying to find the companies which you are finding um does timing becomes a very important part there because cheaper companies and cheaper sectors if i let's say have to pick one let's say a capital goods or something like that and if it's not doing well for 3 years what makes sure that it is what are what are your are you driving your point by data what is it that you're looking for the turnaround to happen usually it is you will find enough catalysts out there so usually it will be at least one quarter of good numbers okay okay which are which are surprises which are absolute surprises across the board okay in that sector okay. usually these trades work the best on a sectoral basis sure. and usually right. we try and do a sector bet than a than a stock bet because stock risk there are so many elements to it which are very hard to model and predict okay and a stock can go to zero but a sector cannot go to zero Sure. Okay, no matter what the problems in the sector are, you know they will still remain with a certain positive market cap. A stock without, you know, I mean, a Worldcom can go to zero, or Enron can go to zero. But sure. as a sector, sectors don't go to zero. So our risk is a lot lower in buying beaten down sectors. Okay. Uh, so you know, it's more a sector bet first of all. Second, uh, when we are looking at these situations, usually one quarter of good numbers is definitely what we look for, for sure. Okay. okay so we don't want to be too early in the trade we want to actually buy 20 30% more expensive that's no problem okay okay because usually when beaten down sectors deliver a good set of numbers for a certain quarter you know stocks will pop for sure sure okay that because and then one is already they are they are on the radar one is watching for some catalyst a good set of numbers is a very good indicator then one is going deeper one is talking to management one is talking to you know people in that overall industry whether it's an industry expert or whatever it is mm-hmm. and you then understand quite quickly that you know this looks to have some sustainability it's not just a flash in the pan 
And remember, for a single company, a flash in the pan is possible. For a sector, flash in the pan is usually, you know, something to be paid a lot of attention. To. Sure, sure. And uh, uh, so when yeah, when you're just buying this as a sector, uh, I I completely buy your point that if one sector across the board the results are good, the chances are that the sector uh, sector is going through a positive uh, side. Uh, once in a while, however, there could be you know um, intermediate triggers which are not sustainable triggers. In that case, right. uh, your risk management, what exactly is your risk management? Uh, is it time-driven risk management? Is it price-driven risk management? Or is it value-driven risk management? So what I'm trying to ask is, will you sell, for example, okay, I have waited for two years and the trigger is not coming, let me sell it. Or it has fallen this much from our buying price, let us sell it. So what is it that your selling point on the negative side and not on the positive side? Selling point is simply that a thesis isn't working out. The stock price may or may not work. That's okay, okay. You know, because stocks don't necessarily always follow fundamentals. And particularly in beaten down names, people are so negative that they can even ignore a good set of numbers. It can happen. Sure. Okay? Because, you know, market needs more confirmation for names that they don't like. So the stock price itself doesn't matter. But if your thesis isn't working out, if what your original reason for buy was is, is simply not there anymore, you know, that's the time to exit. Even if it's the same, same stock price. Even if it's a 20% higher stock price, even if it's a 30% lower stock price, it's more that, you know, look, boss, you know, we thought it is, you know, this this is the way it would pan out, but the sector isn't behaving well or the company management doesn't seem to be good or whatever, there can be a number of reasons, but, you know, we are wrong on this and let's just simply get out of it. Okay. And as I said, therefore, that the trade sizing is very important. So you cannot be disproportionate to the free float of these companies. Because they, they, you know, all, almost all of these companies become more like VC investing. So they're illiquid, they're hard to get in, hard to get out. So, you know, you have to size your trades very carefully here. So uh, can you can you give a brief as to how do you size your trades, uh, industry-wise as well as company-wise? Like I said, you know, no, not more than, you know, 5-10% of the company at the highest. Okay. Okay. Industry-wise? And, uh, Industry-wise, you multiply that. I mean, most industries will have at least five, seven names in them. Oh, wow. Usually, okay. by and large. Okay. So, you know, you are, you, are, you are then deploying not more than, depending on this level of conviction, you're deploying not more than 25% of your risk capital into into that particular sectoral bet. Mm-hmm. Not more than that. Okay. And like I said, given the upside if things pan out, you know, you're talking significant numbers. So there's no point being greedy, so greedy at the bottom that you've really gone out on a limb and tested all your risk parameters and bought so much that you can't exit. You know, all those things are quite 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 a stupid thing to do because you're looking at, you know, 10x why to risk so much in the beginning itself. Okay. You know, I'll give you you know, you know, I'll give you a simple example. I mean, you know, we bought into a company called A to Z Infra about a year back. Sure. Okay, a year and a half. Back, yeah. Okay, about twenty rupees. It's about forty rupees now. No, I think, I think I own maybe you know eight ten percent of the company, something like sure. that. Sure. Sure. Now, if you look at it, the daily trading volumes are about ten twenty lakh shares. Okay. Okay. And at that volume, you can assume that exit is maybe a thirty day period. Okay. Okay. You know. Forgetting the price for a second, all right. Sure. Now, that is that is that is comfortable. But if if you were holding twenty five percent of that, that's a strict no no. That's no way. No matter how convinced we are, that's simply not going to happen. Okay. So you know those are that, that's that's a good live example of the way you would want to size it. 
let me let me go you know the next level within this within the stock selection also okay so you decided that an industry is ripe for let's say a comeback or whatever it is that you're betting on um generally we have seen in that especially in the cyclical sectors we have seen that the uh, at the time when the sector turns out the quality of the management really doesn't matter on the contrary sometimes the really bad stocks will give you outsized returns and uh, the good companies in that sector might give you lesser returns uh, what is your security selection criteria within that industry once you go, once you find one actually the worse the stock the better the return <laughs> yeah that's so, what that's right. what i want so to say so definitely if you are if you are going to be positive in fried or going to be buying larsen and tugo yeah let's <laughs> be very clear about yeah yeah so, right. and right. if you look at and that and that's where our focus on sectoral weights so that is very central to our investment philosophy is look at the sector weight okay and when the sector is going to turn in the guys with the lowest weight in the sector is where you will make the biggest bang for the buck because look a weight of a sector is always bounded by 100% correct right, right. so if there are 10 stocks in the sector lasan and tubal let's say 30% and the others are like 5% something is 15% etc 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 and then you will find a bunch of stocks which like 2% sector weight 3% sector weight okay and they right. used to be 10% sector weight 5 years back so when they are at all time low sector weight relative to their own history okay and you are then finding some catalyst within the overall sector to turn positive in those are the names you're going to be buying the ones who have lost 90% of their weight in the last uh, you know 5 years or 4 years or 3 years whatever the time period is fair enough because those those from from a 2% weight will go to 4% weight or a 5% weight but larsen and tubro from a 30% weight is probably going to lose weight to these guys because weight is always a circular move between the low to the high high to the low right is there a criteria i'm saying so let's say uh, is there a is there something which will say okay even though this this company is like really low but i don't want to touch this company what will stop you from touching that lower weight company let me ask that like i said the first point is whether i'm you know we are seeing enough to turn positive on the sector itself yeah, yeah. if one is then you have plenty of guys the fallen angels who have lost 80 90% weight in the last several years time and then it's a pretty simple thing to pick that you know usually companies with those kind of weights and that that bottom will have debt i mean that's almost inevitable <laughs> yeah okay yeah. so then you pick the least worst option out of them i mean it's, it's you know it's a dog with the least fleas yeah Uh, so I, i'll let me talk in terms of examples you know it i probably will put across question better so let's say if you're picking infra okay and you yep. see a madhukon yep. project and right. but some very high debt to equity number and the balance sheet let's say a company is let's say 10x 10 debt to equity okay and the balance sheet is screwed up and uh, cash of course no cash flow from operation nothing no nothing right. which an investor looks for okay and then right. there is something right. which is 5x um and you're saying okay i want to touch these bad companies both are bad but will you take 5x or will you take 10x and in the up cycle it it wouldn't matter because none of the companies going to get bankrupt if they haven't gone bankrupt in the down cycle they won't probably get bankrupt in the up cycle correct so what will you pick i mean yeah so yeah so again remember one simple thing that yeah. the criteria is never that simple that just because the company is in trouble i have to go and buy it yeah okay. so there are that's what i'm trying to ask what are those criteria other okay so there are there are nuances to it yeah okay there yeah. has to be some Hidden jewel in that company that I like. Okay. And again, I, I'll give you an example of an infra play, which is A to Z. You know. Okay. I mean, I don't like the infra business. We have been negative on it. I think we, we at the top of the market, 2007. You know, 
you know, I sold these companies. There was, you know, I, I told the promoter of these companies that you guys are going to bust the way you're running your business. Yeah. You know, all this order book nonsense, you know, it's never going to work. Although, you know, I was very early in 2003 also when I saw them really, really cheap at halftime book. Right. Uh, you know, so the HCCs of the world. So actually, I, you know, I rode the way up, but I saw towards the end of 2007 at the peak of the bull market, things were completely out of hand. And then obviously the collapse happened over the last you know, 10 years. So that's not good enough reason just because something has collapsed that I have to go out and seek thrill in those names. There has to be something which is a lot beyond that, you know, just simply dead. And, you know, for instance, in A2Z, I, as I said, I don't like the infra business. I don't like the EPC business. I think it's a third class business. It's impossible to make money in that on a sustainable basis because you're dealing with the government and nobody can make money off the government doing business legitimately. That's a simple belief. Okay. Right. Sure. So, 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 the reason why we liked it was that embedded in their entire mess was their facility management, which, you know, does 300 crores of turnover and makes about 30 crores of profit. And if you were to put a 2020 P to that, it's like 600 crores. The market value of the company itself was some 240 crores, the aggregate company. Obviously, you know, that's because of debt. So, okay. at least you have the germ of an idea or some daylight visible here that if they find a way you know to get this debt to some extent reduced and then find a way to unlock this value hmm. you know then we have something here i understand so it's not purely a quantitative driven approach it's, it's no 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 far from it far from it it's not it's not a dumb computer model picking up thing that any any anybody can run a model and save stocks at some you know five year lows there's and no rocket course, science and of course, that runs a risk of uh, uh, getting into value traps as well. So you essentially saying Correct. you use you use your uh, intellect to basically rule that out and look for a catalyst too. Hundred percent. I mean, no, the the computer model will only tell you that this is the range you should be focusing on. This is the basket, but then it is a lot of qualitative stuff. I mean, so it's not at all a computer-driven model. Sure. So, within that qualitative, can I ask you how much you give uh, weight to the management and you have been very vocal in saying, you know, that management, good managements are always in hindsight. Uh, what what exactly, um, what is your view when you're looking at management perspective from a company's perspective? I mean, the, the only thing I will look for is in such situation, remember, all managements which are hugging the bottom of the sector weights yeah. are all terrible managers. I mean, let's not sugarcoat it. I mean, obviously, there's a reason why they're there. There's a reason why they have debt equities of 2x, 5x, 10x. Okay. okay. If they were that great, then they, you know, they wouldn't be there. So they are branded terrible managers. Good management in bad sectors have a way of at least remaining solvent, you know, sane and solvent. They may not be reporting big, high popping numbers, but at least they won't be bankruptcy candidates. Yeah, sure, sure. So, and in a, in a, in a, it's like in a bear market, a good investor will lose like everybody else, but he, you know, he, he, he's not going to go bust. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, so, so so the point I'm making is that all these managements are branded bad management, and there's, there's a good good reason for that. In that, the only judgment you need to make is that is that bad management tagged because of fraud, or is it because simply poor judgment? That is that is the call you need to make. Okay, okay. because remember, when you're buying such companies, you're going to be in bed with them for three years or four years or five years. You know, it's not going to be a trade. You're not you're not buying a last hundred two. Right. Okay. You're not buying a data motor. So, there you'd better be sure that whatever happened didn't happen because of malintent or at least not a lot of it. Okay. 
you know, and that's you know, after doing this for a long time, it's not that difficult to figure that out. You know, two meetings, you will know that look, you know, there are reasons why this happened. That's stupid. He, you know, he made mistakes. You know, whatever we went overboard, got carried away, you know, sure. by variety of advice. All that can be solved, but fraud cannot be solved. So fraud is a strict, you know, no no go area. Okay. So, so coming to the next part, Mr. Sharma, what happens in such companies is you, if you have bought the right thing on the downside, being a cyclical, they may even make the same stupid mistakes again when the cycle turns. So how do you decide when to get out of such sectoral bets? <laughs> oh yeah, I mean that's quite likely that they will make the same or similar mistakes. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know you have to, and again, not 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 very difficult. You start to see that they're talking nonsense again. I mean, you know you. And remember, you're engaging with them quite frequently. You meet with them. You sit and have a drink with them. You know, they'll start to again go grandiose and say that I'm bidding for this or I'm building that. And you're saying that what are the numbers behind it? And they'll say, nee, 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 they, you know, yeah, I know it's a lot of money. I mean, those are the kind of come on, you know, it's not difficult to figure out. You get a very, very clear sense that now this guy is going nuts again. Sure. So, uh, just to again, just uh, just building on that. Um, is his saying and his acting insane going to be a trigger enough for you to get out or are you going to give the market the benefit of doubt because market can stay rational for a long, long period of time? So are you going to play no, no, that no, game? No, we have no interest in the market. We have no, we have no interest in, in, in the market in such situations. Then it is nearly time to back you back. Very, very clear about it. Okay, perfect. So like you mentioned on the downside, you take... Uh, Say in 100 rupees, how much is the particular stock worth? So at the top, do you have something similar to calculate? Like they've come to a weight where it becomes impossible for them to continue anymore, or something, some sort of that quantitative criteria? Yes, absolutely. You can, you can, you can easily tell. Again, the sector weight relative to the market weight, okay, very, very good indicator. Okay, that it's contributing only X to profit, but it's contributing 3X to market cap. Right. Of, the, of the entire market. You know, there are there are many quantitative measures that we, that we use. And okay. they, they will almost inevitably tell you that, you know, if not fall, at least a sector will lose weight by sheer underperformance. So, you know, a sector may not fall, yeah. but at, at the very least, it will, it will lag. Lagging means other, others will do better. So, in that case, in any case, you should switch out of the sector, which is quantitatively telling you that now the weight of this sector cannot be higher. So, you know, go back to tech of, tech of 2000, you know, very, very clear that a you know, group of four or five stocks was dominating the Sensex, you know, weights. And you were saying that, you know, can the Sensex therefore, you know, simply be all tech and all other sectors put together will be like 20% and everything and all these four or five companies will become like 80% of the, you know, those are very clear indicators. So, you know, it's not, again, while yes, you can exit a little, little too soon, but you know, I, I, have, I have not found to be, in, a, in, in, in hindsight, to be that wrong that you exited and, you know, things kept going up and they became, again, remember, I'm making one simple point. I'm not talking absolute stock prices. I'm talking weights. Sure. I'm only right. interested in weights. I'm, stock prices and absolute sense have infinite capacity to go up. So, let's not debate that. But the weight is bonded. It's bonded by 100%, which is a far easier call to make. It's a far, far easier call to make. Sure. Besides sectoral weights, can you get a, a few quantitative parameters you give high weightage to? I mean, I'm sure you look at many parameters, but there are few which stands out. So, uh, any couple of more quantitative numbers you look at? Parameters? I mean, to me, the mantra, the holy grail is weights. Okay. I mean, that, 
in the quantitative thing because valuation again you don't know 60p is right or 100p is right or 500p is right who the hell knows i mean you know we've seen tech trade in india from all the way from like you know when they started 20x to they were trading at 600x so you could have been wrong at every level so i'm not interested in making absolute price or valuation calls i'm only interested in making relative calls within an overall basket which is bonded by 100% all the way so that for me is the holy grail that is for me the mantra okay both on the ups for instance oil trade very simple like i give you a simple example you know when i turned bullish last year it was 3728 dollars the weight of oil in the overall commodity index basket was at a 25 year low it had gone back to 91 levels wow. okay okay so i'm saying that can it lose more weight i'm not saying can it lose more stock price i'm saying can it lose more weight but what if it does i mean where do you draw the line because, yeah because yeah it, it could but what is what are the chances of something in an overall sort of bear market but already in terms of uh, the weight that it, it has occupied you know, on a 25 26 year basis yeah it has suddenly overnight gone from being at x to being at you know point point 5x you know 0.05x yeah. in that sector Yeah. In a matter of one and a half years time. Now, what are the chances that this remains there or goes lower, versus it trades up higher? So, yeah, we can go from point. No, fair enough. So, you are putting the odds in your favor. That's that part is very, 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 very clear. Highly, highly, uh, very clear. But what is the risk right. management? So, let's say if it does go below, for example, let's say in two thousand eight, you are looking at the index of the banks in US, okay, and it goes dramatically low and will be the at all time lows. At what point you will stake in nayar this is not working otherwise there you end up becoming bill miller kind of situation where you know it just goes on down and you just keep on adding so where do you draw the line is this price based line somewhere the only place where i don't make these calls are in bank <laughs> 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 okay so a bank is nothing but a drop of gasoline on a hot tin roof it has no assets it has nothing it is all up in the air okay okay it has a tiny sliver of equity that equity can evaporate in no time so i am not making value calls Fair or enough. you know Fair that enough. is a sector that can go to zero by the way and it did right fair enough so i think i think the only risk management you are doing it as a portfolio level that you're not betting all the things there but uh, you're comfortable till the point your thesis uh, plays out and you're not betting on something which can go to zero like banks Banks can go to zero, right? I mean, what is the meaning of book value? People say trading at half a book value, and therefore, I say, what? What do you mean by book value in a bank? I mean, it, it is all all a notional number. In an industrial, I know what a book value means, right? There is some yeah, some substance yeah. to it. True. Right. Right. Uh, Mr. Sharma, back in two thousand one, this is totally an unrelated topic. Now, uh, you guys were able to sniff a rat in the financials of Worldcom. Uh, I yep. mean, I know it's a way, way back, but can you refresh your memory and talk us through how your forensic research unearths the fraud? Yeah, I wish you had told me. I would have read up on what we wrote. But I, you know, that's a long time back. I, I think there was a big disconnect in the capex and uh, the depreciation numbers they were booking. There was some major disconnect that, and and, and in fact, we had asked them this on a conference call, and uh, you know, they had no answer for that, and. Uh, You know, I, I, I really don't recollect all the details, but I will, you know, if I read up, you know, I will know exactly what this is was. But uh, it was pretty evident that something was very terribly wrong here, and uh, you know, but I don't know the exact details. It was just too far back. 
Can you take us through your broad forensic framework which you follow for the companies? Or key four or five points which you look for? Or key four or five points which people generally miss? Well, one of the things, I mean, again, in bad management, so-called bad management, people will always say it's cooking the books and all that. But, uh, you know, it's not that difficult to figure out where the cash is going. Unless, of course, it is a case like Satyam where even the basic documents can't be relied on, which is an exception. But yeah. uh, if, if you just simply, you know, you know, fraud every single thing, then you know, we ultimately have to find financial safeguards. I mean, if that itself is not reliable, then all bets are off. But okay. otherwise, we have found, like there was a company, I will not take the name, but, you know, just a couple of years back, you know, that somebody came to me and said, that take a look at this company. It looks very interesting in India. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, so I said, yeah, but my impression is that it's quite a, you know, fraud management and all that. He said, okay, I mean, that's, that's the consensus. But why don't you do, do a ground up sort of view instead of mm-hmm. just relying on everything? Yeah, that, that's fine. I have no problem with that. We went and we did a lot of work. The things we found was that that company had had no capital issuance. Uh, since 2002 or 2003. Okay. Wow. Okay. Now in India, it's very hard to find companies that have not raised capital in 30 years. Okay. Right. Barring the absolute blue chips and all that. Almost everybody raises them. Assuming the markets are permitting them. Okay. Now here's a company, last capital raised, you know, 13, 14 years back and a mere 25 crore preferential. So I said that, that's, that's a good, you know, good sign. Second, Debt needs to be 500 crores. That has come down to 150 crores. Good sign. Companies paying dividend. Good sign. Companies paying 33% tax. Good sign. Uh, at least all these elements which are pure cash flow driven. Okay. There's nothing accounting about paying taxes or paying dividends or reducing debt. I said, if this is there, then this guy is not a fraud boss. Okay. I mean, I'm very, very, very clear in my mind. After that, we did a lot of qualitative work. We went in, we met a lot of people, etc. So the stock is up three times now in the last two years. One and a half years, right? Again, you know, it's and I and then a lot of fund managers told me that you know, Shankar, I've heard you like this company. You know, how, how come you like this guy? A total fraud company. I said, yeah, I mean that's what I'd heard too. But have you guys done any work on this? Yes. And in every and this, I'm talking the marquee names of the Indian fund management industry. Sure. And not one guy, not one guy had even bothered to do this basic four five tests, financial checks. And you just sure. simply listen to people across a you know, cocktail table and, you know, say that, okay, okay, okay this guy's a fraud, so forget about it. And this is so simple. It doesn't take any time. So sure. just the basics are good enough for you to know, okay? You know, CapEx, again, very, very good indicator. Right. So what is the CapEx about? Does this business need CapEx? Again, again, that's a cash flow measure. Right. Okay? So these five, six things are, are, are enough for you. You don't have to become very exotic about it. Sure, sure. That, as I said, history, history of capital raising is very, very important. You know, that's like, pretty much on the top of the list. Sure. Can I just pick up on your experience a bit? Uh, I was, uh, you know, revising some financial shenanigans methods which the companies have used and we have figured out over a period of time. Uh, one of the common cash flow shenanigans which many companies do outside but I have not been able to find in India is that companies take cash flow from operating, so from investing or financing activities and they uh, take it back to operations. Any company in your mind which have done it? You mean they've taken... Cash flow from investing or financing activities and they have taken it from there to put it into operating activities and increase their CFO number, you know, uh, uh, visually. Oh, that's, uh, I don't recall any company in India yeah. because usually you do have to categorize it reasonably accurately. Yeah. But, but what is done, okay? Yeah. I'll give you another example of cooking the books, okay? Which is that I buy a company, 
it, let's say, 5 crore revenue. Mm-hmm. Okay. I buy it for 100 crores. Mm-hmm. Those 100 crores I inject into the company. So let's say I don't buy out anybody, but I acquire it via an injection of capital into that company. So the company becomes mine. All right. Sure. Right. Now the company got 100 crores of cash. That's on the balance sheet. And I rotate that cash via the PNL. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So the company then suddenly, after I acquire, starts to declare good numbers. <laughs> okay. True. True. So, and remember, there are no receivables because the company has got the cash. The biggest yeah. problem is you, you can cook the books to an accounting angle, but you still have to get the cash in at some point. And most companies get caught out in the receivable cycle. That okay, you're running. Uh, you know, one one company in the education space in India, which was very popular a few years back. Yeah, yeah. You know, six thousand yeah. crore market cap, and I have to tell all my fund manager buddies, what the hell do you see this as a total fraud company? Mm. That is now, I think, almost down to zero. And uh, again, mm. you know, three sixty-five day receivables in the education business. And I asked a simple question: that how come you are you're collecting cash after a year? He said, "No, oh, no, that's the model." I said, "Boss, I studied in a school. I'm sure you have too." You know, usually we pay fees fees in advance. We don't pay fees a year later. I mean, we school, sure. you know, we school sure. takes money a year after you study, right? That's a bullshit. Okay. So, you know, so the point is that you acquire a company, you pay hundred crore cash. That cash is in the bank. It's rotated via the balance sheet into the PNL. Suddenly, the company starts to declare five crore profit. And, sure. uh, and everybody lauding you that wow, what a deal! You turn around this company next year again, fifteen crore profit. So suddenly now you increased your worth because that 100 crore lying with you prior to the acquisition was worth only 100 crore because it's cash in the bank, correct? Cash in the bank yeah. is equal to one. All right? Yeah. yeah. But that cash transferred to another company and rotated back via PL of now what is a 100% sub suddenly has a PAP multiple of 15, 20, 50x. You see? You see what I'm sure. saying? Sure, sure. Right. That's right. a brilliant way. That's a brilliant way to increase your own market. Another way is that you can ask the company not to declare any results, and when you merge it with yourself, uh, uh, declare all the results, good yeah, results. Exactly. So, so here, here, what you're doing is you got the cash in the bank. That's the first law of manipulation. That unless you have cash in the bank, yeah. don't try doing it. You'll be caught out. Here, you've, yeah, yeah. you've got the yeah, cash. Yeah. And now, all you need to do is to keep booking revenues and show the cash coming in. He's showing collection, so there is no account receivable. Analysts are saying, brilliant, you know, mm. the guy runs with like a 15-day collection <laughs> cycle. That's amazing. Right? <laughs> so, true, true. So, you know, that's... And that, that's where I think the understanding of business makes a large amount of difference. Uh, you know, people who just want to look at the numbers, they get it wrong. Correct. So, there, so in sure. this case, in this kind of case, just looking at financial numbers or looking at just cash flow can be very misleading. I'm just giving you a contra example. Sure. Uh, you know how this can be manipulated, Mr. Sharma. On your website, I saw the first global quant system family. Uh, it says it's a multi-factor, multi-period quantitative trading system that aims to be anti-consensus, anti-correlation in its approach. Uh, what is the underlying philosophy and the modus operandi of this? As I told you, the central philosophy is the weights. Okay. Okay. And then, of course, it is married with momentum. It is married with, there are some valuation parameters in that too. Okay. Right. So, they, those are overlays on top of what is the bedrock of this is really the weight. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And then and you will add a few more layers to that. Okay. And and you guys are one of very few uh, organizations who are not averse to combining fundamental analysis with quant. 
So, uh, in this, uh, how does the screening happen? Do you filter based on fundamentals first and then look for quant inputs or the other way around? Like the, the, sector, other way is, the sector is the in other trouble. Way. Other way around. I think it, it's for weights and then uh, then I think the companies. Yeah. So, uh, Shankar, so far, you know, whatever we have talked about, it seems that, you know, majority of your money you make by betting on companies or sorry, betting on industries which are going to revive and going to make money in future, you know. Uh, why is it that you have this image of perma beer on the street? I mean, is it is it because by nature you're you know, skeptic and you always talk con- cautionary things in interviews? Or you are a beer at heart and your interviews are timed only after the fall. What is it? that? Why have you that image? If you can just throw some light. Well, they just call me when the market falls. <laughs> that's, 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 that's not in my hands. You know, when the markets are rallying, they never call me. So, you know, I can't tell them that you'll call me now. right? I mean, okay. But how come this image came at the first place? No, the image can be whatever it is. But the fact is that, you know, by nature, you know, I believe in caution. So I am not a uh, evangelist for the stock market, and I have no intentions to be. You know, many people, you know, a few people make a lot of money, but many people lose a lot of money. And I don't want to make it seem as if it's just a piece of cake, and you know, just walk in and you make a lot of money. Sure. There is some skill involved, not a lot of skill, but there is still some skill. And more importantly, there's a lot of temperament involved in making money in the stock market. Not everybody has that. So I don't want to make it seem like a you know, it's player or walk in the park, which Obviously, mean that I usually caution people from going overboard in wild bull markets because they're, those are the times when we'll make the big mistakes. But in reality, as I've said this in the past, that I've been outright bearish only twice, and which was really in 2000 and in 2007-8. Otherwise, I'm generally cautious, but I'm not bearish. Okay. And, uh, you know, right. in India in particular, if you are cautious, that means you're bearish. I mean, I think the equation is very, very clear. <laughs> Okay. Or you, or let's say if you're if you're just going to be balanced, yeah, you're you'll be you will be you know categorized as the bear. That balance equals bearish. I don't think balance equals bearish. Balance equals balance. I mean, you're saying that look things look good, but these are a few things you must keep in mind. I mean, that if that equates to bearishness, so be it. But outright bearish, I've actually been just you know just pretty much twice. So I think it's whoever is cherish is a bull and barring that everybody else is a bear. Is that the case? <laughs> so, you know, I don't want to be a cheerleader. I mean, that's not what I get paid to do anyway. So do you think as Indian investors, we are the most optimistic people around or something like that? I think like we that? are. I think, yeah, 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 I think that's a fair point. I think we are very, very optimistic, sometimes excessively optimistic. And that, in fact, you know, reflects in stock prices or other valuations as well. I mean, you look at India as a pretty peculiar market. Nothing which is even halfway decent is ever cheap. You know, right. you you will actually be forced to pay and overpay for moderately and you know good you know good companies. That's not the case in many other markets where sure. you will you will find huge mispricings in India. To take to see mispricing, you have to take a lot of risk. You know, right. I'll give you I'll give you a simple example. You know, there's a company called Aberdeen in London. Okay, which is you know big investment mm, mm, manager. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I mean trading a dividend yield of seven percent or six percent, something like that. Okay, the quality business, you know, I mean that kind of asset size, you know, repetitive, replicable. You know, every single quarter, you know, a barring you know big sort of up to a certain thousand. The seven percent dividend yield, you know, you are borrowing at one percent. You're you know you're you're buying something seven percent dividend yield, and hopefully you'll get some growth. I mean those opportunities in India, you will never ever find. Money on the table today. 
you will find money on the table a year from now but never ever today so very very hard <laughs> or you find it in very very troublesome sectors yeah but then that's not money on the table today you have to go out on a limb you have to take risk right or yeah. oh, very very few times we, we yes. live in a country where we cheer for the opponents white balls as well and would not clap for their force <laughs> direct i agree i agree <laughs> Uh, yeah so coming to this point in most of your interviews you mentioned that you nothing below a 30 50 100% return excites you because you have a very strong fixed income portfolio wherein you get a high double digit returns so how does it make it difficult for you in indian markets and how do you get into the fixed income portfolio and make double digit returns it's not high double digit it is double digit so just to okay. be just to be clear so you can make 12% 15% uh in fixed income you know on a global basis that's not difficult they of course there is there is leverage in it but then if you choosing well you can you can make that so and that's in dollars so you know the equity hurdle rate therefore has to be substantially higher and uh, which is which is why i say that you know in all these so called troubled names you know i the last thing i want to do is to bet so much that you know that's that going to affect you know the fixed income part of it that i have to then draw down on fixed income and pay for the equity that is that is absolutely a no no uh, so the 50 100% therefore also in in reverse tells me that I don't have to risk that much to make good money as i said a while back if you're putting in a few crores and you're looking at a 50 100% every year you still end up with a substantial number at the end of a 2 3 4 year period so so in my method i'm not risking big on a single trade that's just you know in, in simplification tell you that because the upside that i visualize is so much that you know with even a small amount of money in absolute terms i'll make like a lot of money if the trade works out right uh, mr sharma uh, i wanted to uh, know is there any future for short sellers in india i mean there are not many companies available in fno and besides the long term options the leaps is also not there yeah do you do any short selling by the way i now i don't actually trade at all so you know over okay. time okay again you know it's it's just a matter of your life cycle so you know the risk i could take when i was in my 30s i definitely cannot take now i just cannot even i look back and believe that that was the kind of risk we were running you know 20 years back uh, you know where a small 2 3% move in the market would be with a huge amount of plus or minus on a daily basis but that wall we cannot handle it simply not possible and frankly you should not be required to even do that anymore that was the time when you could take risk and you wanted to take risk you have to take risk i don't take that risk also trading is absolutely zero but yes when i was trading actively you know shorting is very central to the entire method usually we have run very balanced books but in extremities we have run you know higher shorts than longs uh, which was in 99 2000 definitely you know I, I remember you know we were vastly short talk us through some of your big shots the home runs that you might have hit i mean home run was definitely tech in uh, february 2000 uh, you know okay. and it was not a more it was not so much a short it was more an exit of a long so you know we had i had missed actually the first part of the tech boom because i was a skeptic so right. the nine the, okay. the boom actually started in 96 in sort of a true sense and infosys etc used to be you know 40 50 times earning as to say it's not too very expensive and remember i mean back then interest rates in india used to be quite high you're talking like mid teens to high high teens kind of interest rates 
in those scenarios you know your multiple should not be more than you know 5 10 times on an aggregate basis for the market okay, with those kind of rates and here we have a sector okay. which is like you know 40 50 times earnings so we were skeptical and therefore we missed the reasonable part of you know the initial part of the of the of the rally and then you know we found a clutch of companies and which were really not not great companies in hindsight but you know the markets loved them you know so you had himachal and you had global and you had penta media and you know and all that and you know like like i always say that you know i i am agnostic on all these things you know many people in hindsight will never even admit to having bought these companies you know <laughs> sure, but mar- but sure. marky names from fii's you know you name it household mutual funds of the us you know they bought 40% of these companies so let's not pretend that you know everybody was only buying infosys <laughs> and wipro in the tech boom so i am very clear sure. about it as long as you can sell right all 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 companies which are trading legitimately and i have a right to buy you know, I, have, i have no problem with that and and also so we got into them yeah so we got into them and we made a lot of money we made like 20 30x i think in a matter of uh, a year year and a half time and that is when i really got very worried because i remember in february 2000 it was like every all these stocks were running 8% up limit up every day and you know i i just felt so uneasy that day you know, this is just too easy simply cannot last it do you look at market valuations in general uh, so uh, are the markets overall how are the markets besides the weight in the market how do you see the overall market perspective well the valuation that time all these names were 200 times earnings so again on valuation on an absolute basis it was stretched but remember they were coming from 50 times earnings so there was nothing to say that why they can't become 600 times earnings or even 1000 times earnings so remember i mean that's as i say valuation i don't believe in i don't believe that valuation can give you i mean at very extremes maybe that it works but in the middle there is a big range in which you can be completely wrong so i don't pay too much attention to you know the valuation ratio so you know sure. i got uneasy and you know i exited and then obviously you know then the stocks you know fell quite a lot in february of 2000 you know i went off on a holiday i came back after a month and everything was down 50% then when they rallied and i then met the companies and again revaluated i thought this game is over i mean this whole tech boom is over and that that that's when the real shot was born so i think in february and sorry march april of 2000 and uh, all these names collapsed you know percent you know in fact i always used to joke that the commission we used to make on a single trade of these used to become you know actually became the stock price so just <laughs> 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 so, <laughs> to make 1% commission you know on all these sure. on, on all these names and they actually was the ultimate stock price of these companies after two years sure. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Shankar, uh, you uh, recently mentioned about Twitter, and I was just, you know, since you brought the question of valuations and all, I was just listening to your, you know, reason which I mentioned there, and the company, uh, I think X Cash, it will be nine billion market cap with seven to eight hundred million cash flow from operations and sorry, free cash, not operations. Yeah. So, um, but in that case, uh, my question is that you know, relatively, it's cheaper, it's fine. I mean, with respect to Flipkart or Snapchat, which you mentioned in your interview. Uh, yeah. it makes sense that you know these companies with no profits no cre- no free cash they are traded at these valuations so why should not twitter be at this valuation but right. if we see the absolute valuation like twitter will be what 12 times cash 12 times free cash so um do you take bets on a relative basis like this or you're saying no absolute or absolutely it's 12 times free cash which is reasonable that's why i'm taking the bet what is the viewpoint here there's no case? relative here i mean i'm just putting 
the relative sort of other companies just to give a perspective, not to say that right. Flipkart is 15, then why Twitter should be 9 billion? Because they're two completely different business and people can overpay for perceived growth in emerging markets by quite a lot, and which is what I think has happened sure. in the Indian in e-com space. But it's just that, you know, and on a on a non on a non cap basis, Twitter is profitable actually. It's just the stock options which uh, expensing out of that which causes the so-called loss. But otherwise, it's actually a profitable company. And I think with you know four five hundred million dollars of profit and you know nine ten billion dollar market cap, twenty x for a tech company or a, let's say a virtual company in that sense, you know, is is not expensive by any standards, even by mm. capital raisings that happened in in the private market in the US. Okay, where you have True. companies of virtually no revenues are now unicorns, two, three, four, five, ten billion dollars. So in that context, company generating cash, and it's a global marquee platform. So all things considered, I think it's a you know, and return on equity, I think is if you take a uh, what about ten, twelve percent, thirteen percent return on equity in an in a in a in a environment where you know interest rates are so low. So you see the sort of the differential between the ROE and the cost of capital. It's massive. So all things considered, I think you know it's a it's a worthwhile bet to take. And again, street view has been very negative and all that. It fits the test. We'll see how it goes. True, true. Okay, uh, um, you know uh, the market participants have been uh, quite bullish on the government, the new government, and you know the activities that have been happening. And you are a data-driven guy. I just want to see it from your eyes. Uh, do you see the data? Uh, resonating with the positivity about the government or there is something which you see a mismatch? What's your view? No, I mean, I think, look, the street always gets paid to be positive. So I don't think we should pay too much attention to that. And I think by and large, and that and that's because of the street drives income from being positive. So even if, you know, you and I became the prime minister, we would say, I'm, I'm 100% sure we would still get positive press or at least on the street, <laughs> right? Because, okay. no, you know, in a bear market or selling a bear market is not profitable. So let's let's ignore that for a minute. The only thing you should focus sure. on is the data, and the data, and which is the been the central thesis for me personally over the last two and a half years is that sure. this government has no nothing which I've seen as a big architecture or a big plan for the country. It has it has been largely piecemeal or largely borrowed from the previous government, so, and and central to their whole uh, sort of thing has been Aadhaar. Everything is coming out of that. So I see nothing mm. which is setting them apart in terms of thinking or in terms of radical plan. Given that and given the underlying data which continues to be very soft and given the fact that you talk to companies and this is pre-demonetization also, things were very, very tepid. In that scenario, my view has been that, you know, large caps require genuine GDP growth, you know, for, for, for them to grow earnings, you know, whatever, 15 odd percent. And that's the other thing that mm. I've always said, I've marveled and I've talked about this publicly that, when your nominal GDP growth is by 6%, how come analysts keep penciling at 15, 20% is Bitcoin earnings growth? I mean, that's absurd because ultimately earnings growth, which are always nominal, will mirror by and large, you know, your nominal GDP growth. So if you go back, our nominal GDP growth used to be 12, 12% or so. So, so earnings were, were around 12 to 15% kind of growth over the last 10 years. And last two and a half years, because, because of inflation declined, you're now, now at by 6% nominal. And earnings growth, if you see last two and a half, three years, that's between 0 and 5%. But beats me why analysts still keep talking about numbers of 15, 20%. It's just a basic, you know, contradiction. So my view has been large caps don't, don't look good because we don't have enough firepower or tailwind to drive large caps up. 
but you know small micro caps have been on an absolute tear and that's been i i, I said this two and a half years back and that that is the area where we're going to make a lot of money and uh, fortunately sure. the trade has worked out well i mean you know that's just a tear away sector you know as, as a as an overall market sector so yeah so talking about analyst and you've been a sell side broker and an investment banker what do you find is the best part and the worst part about that industry or say what you faced well i'll tell you very honestly the being on the sell side you know has has a lot of positive because i you know for for me the biggest perk of being on the sell side has been that i've interacted with very many good minds at the same time i interacted with a lot of idiots also so you know that it kind of balances out but at least one has learned a lot by interacting with some very interesting minds globally on the buy side so that's been a big perk on the negative side the biggest negative is that you cannot talk negative about any company or sector by and large very few people want you to tell them the the reverse case from what they believe in you know almost impossible so if everybody is bullish i remember in the 90s ranbaxy used to be you know must hold stock or alarson and tuglo used to be a must hold stock and when you did the numbers and you presented to them that look guys i mean this, these are all basically trash companies based on numbers the story might be different but the numbers don't add up you would be thrown out of the offices from across the world so while actually if you look at it in 90s alarson and tuglo was an absolute miserable underperformer so was ranbaxy and same with infra in 2007 you know when when we said that this is going nowhere but down in, you know telecom for instance it turned bearish in 2007 you know and i remember with a very marky fund night in new york you know short of him slapping me you know he did pretty much everything else when i told him that look you know telecom is an absolute short this this whole trade is over so they don't want to hear something which is against their beliefs and which i find very strange that you know that what you get paid to do which is that keep an open mind a closed mind is the biggest enemy to investing success i mean single biggest enemy a closed mind and that's what i have found time and again very many people a handful of them will actually tell you no no tell me tell me that my belief is wrong you know you know and i'll pick one name here madhu madhu kela you know, absolutely open mind willing to debate and challenge his own assumptions i mean those are rare people otherwise by and large everybody wants to hear what what they believe in okay so one more thing like say you've been a proponent of market timing and all through your say interviews etc you always keep about talking about how valuations are useless and timing is important but when we come to the indian industry it's all about selling not to time the market keep systematic investments and say even the structure of mutual funds here today does not allow timing because you have to be invested 80% of the time none of the fund managers take a more than a 10 12% cash call is it business considerations or do we believe like anyways investors are taking a timing risk because none of the investors make money in a mutual fund as much as the mutual fund does you don't want to complicate it by giving the timing skill to the fund managers what are your thoughts on the whole i think i think in some part it is also you know sort of laziness because uh, you know if you just simply have a mandate to remain invested you know invested all the time then that's one less problem to you know worry about so you will not take a cash call you buy a large have 90 95% invested all the time it's also convenient you know it may not be always good but it's reasonably convenient uh, that apart you know the structure of the industry asset management industry worldwide is always about gathering assets so i've always said this that the business of a politician is to win elections the business of an asset management company is to gather assets 
performance etc can be all secondary and usually it is so whether it's a politician or an asset management company the one who is getting the most assets or winning is not necessarily the best guy managing money or the best politician it's simply the guy who's marketing it best so no which is why you know you find because see remember performance can be manipulated in terms of what i want to show as performance and most voters and mutual fund inv- investors are fairly similar in fact nobody has got the bandwidth to analyze data that that close so whatever gets spoken loudly you know gets believed and uh, you know asset managers who are rich who are large who have the money to spend on advertising and holding will end up getting more assets simply because of that and you can always massage the data to show good performance depending on what cut off you take true true uh, shankar how is your cerebra investment doing uh, and your interest in neuroscience no it's not an investment i mean that is not about money it is it is simply about uh, yeah it is you know that's something that uh, you know one wants to uh, see where we can go with it in terms of helping people it is not it is not in fact not why why not it's not about making money there's a lot of other ways to make money than doing uh, you know neuroscience it's it's a fascinating area and uh, that's an area where i think there's very, very little being done across the world and if i can as i've always said if i can improve a few lives i mean that's that's great in a, in a, in a, in a you know you can find a doctor to do surgery on your body but you you know to fix a part of the brain which is not right is almost impossible it just doesn't exist so uh, so besides the you know uh, your contribution to the whole uh, project how do you um, basically how do you get involved in this whole project in what kind of details oh i'm very very involved in the sense that we have a lot of research going on we i mean i personally spend a lot of time okay uh, researching this uh, there's something i don't know which i try to find out it's a complicated business sure uh, sure but uh, but but from where from where one was a few years back to where one is now i mean i dare say I, you know often times i find i know more than what a, what a doctor does <laughs> because i'm coming okay. from an outsider's perspective i have no preconceived notions doctors usually do in 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 every day is again a closed mind in a, in a different field sure sure and um, any any books you would want to recommend to us you are i'm, I'm pretty sure you read a lot and not market related anything anything yeah, I, actually i don't read market related books anyway i last okay. i don't know Great. when i read market because i know that's a lot of it is you know and probably you know a lot more than what those guys are writing so i don't read much of that anymore but i mean these days i'm focused more on understanding you know a different aspect of business which is social media and because these these are for some other investments we have sort of more startup kind of things so i'm more interested and more focused on on those or more interested in business models let's say a business model of a company like sara you know which i find absolutely fascinating so those are the stuff kinds of stuff that i'm reading not really traditional investing or market related books reading sure. books on ikea again fascinating business model because the theme i'm trying to understand is this since 2008 the world has been plunged into a consumption crisis but in that last 10 years some companies have thrived and thrived remarkably globally okay i'm sure. just trying to understand what is driving those companies why are they winning business in the face of the worst worst consumption uh, 10 years that we have seen in the last 100 years so what's driving those what business model do they have how are they innovating and zara and ikea are you know right up there you know in my list so i'm i'm trying to understand that sure sure which will be the other companies uh, in that list i'm i'm still researching 
I'm still researching. You know, I'll I'll tell you when I when I have a list ready. I mean, Maruti sure. is a very good example again. You know, closer home. Sure. That sure. I mean, I don't know of any country in the world where in a large industry somebody has a 50% market share. I mean, it's just an amazing, amazing number. And everybody who's anybody in the auto business is there. Yeah. And yeah. yet, what was erstwhile a government company to have hung on to a, in fact, they've gained market share in the last couple of years. It's right. just a remarkable story. Amazing. Completely agree. Completely agree. Mr. Sharma, one last question from my side. Uh, can you recommend us some names that you sh- you think we should profile on a podcast? And and not the regular cheery ones, but you know even the unknown names. You think they are really good, and we should be profiling them. Yes, I will. I will send you guys a mail. Let me think of a list. There are there are many sure. smart people. I think you should talk to them. But I will send you a list. Great, great. Uh, it was a pleasure talking to you, sir. Um, so thanks a lot for giving us some time. No problem. Real, real pleasure, gentlemen. Anytime. Thank you. Thank Mr. you. Thank you, sir. Thank you.